Well, thank you so much, Richard. It's such a joy to be here. You know, I was thinking as um, we were singing, it's wonderful to be in a church that exemplifies the theme of this conference. Convictions based on the Scripture and the Scripture alone. I'm grateful for Richard's ministry here, 25 years forming just those biblical convictions in this congregation. And, of course, many of you have benefited from his ministry either here as a part of this church or or from afar, as I have. But um, it is a joy for me to be here. Thank you so much. Well, this evening, I've been given the topic of conviction with generosity. Conviction with generosity. Really, the title and the theme of tonight's message is an admission that our strengths can become our greatest weaknesses. We can be people and belong to churches that have deep, biblically held convictions. Sadly, that that fighting spirit that is rightly focused on defending those fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith can easily become infighting on what really are intramural issues. And Tonight, we want to look at that very temptation and how the Scripture addresses it. Let me begin with a historical example. It was in 1531 that Heinrich Bullinger followed Zwingli as pastor of the great church in Zurich. It was a number of years later that Martin Luther wrote a fiery, frankly mean-spirited treatise attacking Bullinger's view of the Lord's Supper. In 1544, Bullinger wrote John Calvin in nearby Geneva to seek his advice on how to respond to Luther, well, being Luther. Here here is a small portion of Calvin's timeless response and his insightful analysis of a pastor who is careless and harsh in his attacks against Christian brothers on such issues. Listen to what he writes. I hear that Luther has at length broken forth in fierce invective, not so much against you as against the whole of us. Of this I do earnestly desire that you would consider with what efficiency and power of doctrinal statement he has hitherto devoted his whole energy to diffuse far and near the doctrine of salvation. Although he were to call me a devil, which could be possible in Luther's case, I I should still acknowledge him to be an illustrious servant of God. But then Calvin goes on to say this. But while he is endued with rare and excellent virtues, he labors at the same time under serious faults. Would that he had rather studied to curb this restless, uneasy temperament, which is so apt to boil over in every direction. I wish, moreover that he had always bestowed the fruits of that vehemence of natural temperament upon the enemies of the truth, and that he had not flashed his lightning sometimes also upon the servants of the Lord. Again, listen to how Calvin concludes. You will do yourselves no good by quarreling, except that you may afford some sport to the wicked, so that they may triumph not so much over us as over the evangel. I wish, therefore, that you would consider and reflect on these things rather than on what Luther has deserved by his violence, lest that happen to you which Paul threatens, that by biting and devouring one another, you be consumed one of another. 
even should he have provoked us, we ought rather to decline the contest than to increase the wound by the general shipwreck of the church, end quote. That's a wonderful biblical model of trying to preserve unity when we strongly disagree over non-essentials. You know this, but let me just remind you that sinful disunity is pervasive in many local churches. And because of how badly Christians often handle their differences, it's also widely pervasive between churches and between church leaders. Disunity was so important to Paul that when he came to apply his teaching in the book of Ephesians, this is where he began. And it's where I want us to turn tonight. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This book is really revealing the eternal plan of God. He begins with that plan for Christ and His glory and the salvation of sinners in chapter 1, the personal application of that eternal plan in chapter 2, and then the role of the church in that plan in chapter 3. It's interesting that the first three chapters of Ephesians don't contain a single command but one, and that is remember. But when he gets to chapter 4, that changes, because here is the application of that great eternal plan of redemption. Chapter 4, verse 1 is the topic sentence for the rest of the book, and it's a command, as you can see, to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The rest of this letter explains how. And the very first way to walk worthy is to live in unity with God's people. Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And I'll just read down through verse 6, although the paragraph continues down through verse 16. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The theme of the entire paragraph, beginning in verse 1 and running down through verse 16, is obvious from the fact that the concept of one or oneness occurs some 12 times in those 16 verses. And in verse 3, that theme is clearly expressed. Look at it again being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That participial phrase is the center of this entire paragraph. Verses 1 and 2 build to it, and verses 4 through 16 flow from it. Unity. What, what exactly is unity? The Greek word translated unity is from a root Greek word that means literally one, at its basic level, unity is oneness. Now, let's be clear, unity does not mean that the true church must unite as some great visible organization. 
It doesn't mean that we should ignore doctrinal differences just to appear unified. It doesn't mean that we should ignore sin or doctrinal error, either of an individual or a church or a group of churches. So what is unity? Unity means this, that since all Christians are united to Jesus Christ, all true members of the church, that is the invisible church, the true church, we are in fact united to one another. We share an inherent essential unity with all true Christians. It was a unity that was produced at the moment of salvation when we were united to Christ and united to each other. What's the source of our unity? Look again at that phrase in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. You see, you and I can't create this unity, and we're not called to create it. The Spirit of God already produced it. It is a reality among the true people of God. If you're in Christ here tonight, then look around. Everyone else in this room, as well as every other person in this world who truly belongs to Jesus Christ, you are inseparably, essentially united to them in Jesus Christ. So what's our responsibility then if we can't create the unity? Look again at verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Although in form it's a participle, I think you understand that it's actually an imperative. It's, it's a command. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Greek word for being diligent occurs 11 times in the New Testament, and it includes three concepts. Being diligent means to do something with urgency. It means to do something because it's important, and it means to do something with diligence. Being diligent. Do it now, do it because it's important, and work hard at it. We're to be diligent, notice, to preserve, to keep, to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already produced. That's your job, Christian. The Holy Spirit united us together, and your responsibility is to preserve that unity. How exactly do we do that? How do we go about that? Well, the rest of this paragraph tells us how. In verses 2 through 16, we learn three means for preserving unity among us. In verse 2, the, the first means is to put on the attitudes of unity. In verses 4 through 6, it's to focus on the basis of our unity. And in verses 7 through 16, it's to work on Christ's plan for unity. That is, how the church is to function. Now, most of us here belong to churches that follow a biblical philosophy of ministry, the one unfolded in verses 7 through 16, the most famous part of this chapter. So I want us not to focus there tonight, but I want to examine just the first two means for preserving the unity among us, even when we differ on important issues. So let's look at it together. To preserve the unity that the Spirit has already created among us, which is our assignment. It's where Paul begins. Think about that. With all Paul could have admonished us to in this wonderful letter, he begins with this. Be diligent, Christian, to preserve the unity the Spirit has created. To do that, first of all, 
In verse 2, we must put on the attitudes of unity. Now, before we look at the attitudes themselves, I just want to ask and answer one important question that may be on your mind, and that is, are there legitimate reasons for disunity biblically? And the answer is, yes, there are. There are two of them specifically. The New Testament demands two duties of all of us and of churches that risk upsetting the unity of the church, but that we still must carry out. The first of those is we are called to confront unrepentant sin in church discipline, the process spelled out in Matthew 18. There for a member of the church and in in 1 Timothy chapter 5 for a leader, an elder in the church. So, yes, we can disrupt the unity to confront patterns of unrepentant sin that threaten to risk the the spiritual life of that person. A second legitimate reason for disunity is correcting false doctrine. Paul talks about this often in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18, he says, fight the good fight. We are to be fighting for the truth. And of course, Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. The most compelling illustration of this, I think, in all of Scripture is Galatians chapter 2, where literally the future of the gospel is at stake. Those are the only exceptions. Let me say it again. Those are the only exceptions biblically. When there is discord and disunity, that's not because of correcting false teaching or confronting unrepentant sin, that disunity is itself sin. Paul's primary point here in Ephesians chapter 4 is disunity within a local church, obviously the church that he's writing to in Ephesus, but the same thing holds true among believers in other churches and across the world on venues now like social media, the internet. In one verse here, Paul identifies the attitudes that will promote unity among us. Where these attitudes exist, there will be peace and unity. And where these attitudes are missing, there'll be conflict and disunity. Look at verse 2 again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. These participial and prepositional phrases are intended again as imperatives. They're intended as commands. Paul is saying, display these attitudes. And these attitudes will promote unity. Perhaps you remember when you were in school and in science class, you were, you were doing an experiment with a, a fungus or a bacteria or something you were growing. You would put that in a Petri dish, but in order to grow that particular fungus or bacteria or whatever it was, you needed exactly the right conditions, the right environment, the right atmosphere. In some cases, it may have been light. In other cases, darkness, humidity or dryness or whatever was required. You had to set the atmosphere for the growth of that organism. It's the same in the church, between churches and leaders If we want unity to grow and flourish, we have to provide the right environment. And Paul says the right environment for unity consists of these four attitudes. Let's look at them. First of all, humility. Humility. With all humility. Pride is the enemy of unity. 
Proverbs 13, 10, through insolence or pride comes nothing but strife. Third John, verses 9 and 10, Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either and forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. How did all of that start? He loves to be first. It's pride. When Paul wants to preserve unity among us, brothers and sisters, this is where he starts. And it's a really unusual place to start. If you had lived in the first century, this actually would have surprised you because humility was not a virtue in the first century until the New Testament. The priority of humility actually comes from the Old Testament and the Hebrew word group for lowly, which occurs some 270 times in the Old Testament. This virtue of lowliness, humility, has always been crucial to God. I love the way it's recorded in Isaiah 66, too. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The New Testament authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they adopted the sort of rejected concept and idea of humility from the Greek language, the word itself, and they infused it with this Old Testament concept of lowly. The Greek word means lowly-mindedness. It's not an attitude of self-abuse, but rather it's a willingness to assume the position of a servant. Humility has to do with having the right disposition or the right mindset about ourselves and others. This change of disposition to humility is so foundational, so crucial to the Christian life and faith that it always accompanies genuine salvation. If you're a believer at all, you know what humility is because that's how your Christian life began. It began with the first beatitude, blessed are the beggars in spirit for to them belong the kingdom of God. There was a point in your life when you were reduced to the place of a spiritual beggar, knowing you had nothing God wanted and all you could do was beg for him to show you grace and mercy. If you're here tonight and that's never been a position you have come to with God your creator, I plead with you tonight to humble yourself, acknowledge your desperate need of change, of forgiveness, of eternal life, of a relationship with your creator, and fall on your knees like a beggar. That's where Jesus says the journey toward God begins. In James 4 and 1 Peter 5, we're told, in addition to that, that God resists the proud Christian but gives grace to the humble. So humility is not just how you get in. Humility is how the Christian life continues. It is a necessary virtue for every Christian. The Ephesians already knew this and knew this well because Paul had demonstrated this attitude when he had lived among them in Acts chapter 20, he reminded the Ephesian elders that while he lived among them, he says, I serve the Lord in all humility. This is crucial. This is crucial for your life. The deadliest danger to your soul is pride. And humility 
is the only antidote. What exactly is humility? Well, Paul defines it for us over just one book in Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 2. It's a very simple but obvious definition. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness, this word was often used of the selfish pursuit of political office. (laughs) Imagine that. Some things never change. It's the selfish ambition that has no concept of public service, but is solely concerned about power. It demonstrates itself by jockeying for position, for power, for a place, and fostering a kind of divisive party spirit. We describe people like this who have selfishness, by this Greek word, we describe them as having personal agendas and acting in their own self-interest. That's what this word means. This is deadly to the unity of the church. John Chrysostom put it so beautifully when he said, nothing will so divide the church as love of power. The other motive behind pride we learn here in verse 3 is empty conceit. Empty conceit is literally empty glory. It's to be conceited and ambitious to advance your own reputation. Selfishness seeks personal goals Empty conceit seeks personal glory. Both of them are, at their heart, pride. They're built on the foundation of pride. Unity only flourishes when pride is replaced by humility. Instead of selfishness and empty conceit, notice what Paul says, we're to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard. It's a great Greek word. It literally means to evaluate the evidence and come to a verdict. True biblical humility is evaluating the evidence and coming to an accurate verdict that the believers around us are more important than we are. That's what Paul says. Let me ask you, genuinely tonight, is that how you think? Is that how you think towards your spouse? Is that how you think about your children? Is that how you think about the people in your church? your fellow pastors and elders? Or do you see yourselves, and we're all tempted to this, none of us would say we're the best, we're the brightest, we're the, we're the, the best in every sense, the most skilled, the, the most spiritual. Instead, we're tempted to do something like this. Well, we're better, we're smarter, we're a little more skilled, we're a little more spiritual. If that's how we see ourselves, then our relationships will be filled with discord and disunity because that's what pride always produces. Notice Philippians 2.4 adds, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. True humility is always looking for a way to serve others, to seek the welfare of others before I seek my own. So let's give a little definition to humility. Humility according to Paul in this text, involves two basic truths. First of all, reaching the verdict that others are more important than I am. And two, looking for ways to serve them. That's humility. And verse 5 reminds us that Christ was the absolute perfect example of this attitude. The absence, by the way, of this humility 
is one of the chief attributes of false teachers. I could take you through, I have several texts in my notes I could take you through to show you that pride marks false teachers, not genuine spiritual leaders. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, back to our text, Paul says, act toward one another with all humility. In other words, this includes when the brother needs to be confronted for sin or error. Galatians 6.1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, listen to this, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That's humility. You don't go thinking, I cannot believe this person has done this. I would never do this. It's humility. How do you develop an attitude of humility? We all need to. How do you develop it? I love what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, I am told that I am to esteem others better than myself. And there is only one thing that can make me do that. There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I see that I am a sinner and that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust. I say that no one can be worse than I am. I am the chief of sinners, and anyone must be better than I am. Nothing but the cross of Christ can give us the spirit of humility. Or as Isaac Watts puts it, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When we struggle with pride, brothers and sisters, it's because we haven't recently contemplated Jesus Christ and his cross and that the only way that our wretched souls could be reconciled to our Creator was by the death of his eternal Son. If we had contemplated it, we would be humbled, and that humility would help preserve the unity between us. There's a second attitude here that breeds unity. It's verse 2, gentleness. This is a hard one, hard to define. The opposites of this Greek word are harsh and rough. This word is actually used of a wild animal that has been domesticated. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines it this way, it's the quiet and friendly composure which does not become angry or embittered toward unpleasant people or circumstances. Humility has to do with how we think about others. Gentleness primarily has to do with how we treat them. It's an internal quality that is reflected in our behavior. We only treat others with gentleness if we are gentle. This word, by the way, was used to describe Moses in Numbers 12.3. Now, the man Moses, our text says, was very humble. The Septuagint translates it with this word, gentle, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. 2 Corinthians 10.1 speaks of the gentleness of Christ. Galatians 5.23 says that this attribute is a fruit the Spirit produces in the lives of genuine believers. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that it's also part of what the 
the attribute of love produces in our lives. In Colossians 3.12, Paul commands it, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on humility and gentleness. Titus 3.2, malign no one, be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Gentleness is an attitude that allows you to remain calm and under control in your manner regardless of the provocation. When I was growing up in South Alabama, our family had boxer bulldogs. We lived on the edge of civilization and uh, had boxer bulldogs during all that time. And you know that by nature, they're very strong defensive dogs. But I remember watching and with fascination as as a young kid, a puppy, tiny little newborn puppy, terrorized his mother. He would bite and claw and scratch and nip. And yet, despite all of her power and strength, the mother would just lie there and take it, always responding with gentleness. That's how we're supposed to be with people, even when people nip and scratch and bite. And oh, by the way, they do. We're always supposed to treat them with gentleness. That includes, by the way, when they're wrong. When they're wrong, as in caught in sin, Galatians 6.1, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And when they're wrong doctrinally, 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So let me ask you tonight, what is your manner with people? Are you known for gentleness in your home? Are you known for gentleness in your church? Here's a really convicting question. Are you known for gentleness on the internet in how you treat your Christian brothers? Gentleness breeds peace and unity, but harshness stirs up anger and strife. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Don't misunderstand me. There are times and places. May God grant us the wisdom to know the difference. There's a third attitude that breeds unity, and that's patience. Patience. One Greek lexicon defines this word as the self-restraint which does not quickly retaliate for a wrong. John Chrysostom describes it as a spirit which has the power to take revenge but never does. You see, this word, patience, is slowness to anger even when that anger is deserved. This attitude is most often attributed to God. In Exodus 34, 6, in his great self-revelation, he describes himself as one who is slow to anger. I love the Hebrew in all of those expressions. I remember as a as a Hebrew student in seminary, translating as we often tend to do late at night, and I I was translating the book of Jonah, and I came into chapter 4, and there's God's self-revelation repeated, and I translated it, and I looked at my translation, and I thought, that must be wrong. I must have looked at the wrong word in the lexicon, because literally, slow to anger in Hebrew is long-nosed. I can appreciate that, right? (laughs) God is he has a long nose, means it takes him a long time to get hot. And that's the very thing that's supposed to be true of us. We are also 
to have this quality. It's not only a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, patience, but it's also another fruit of love, 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. So where the Spirit is and where there's genuine love for others, there will be patience. Colossians 3.12, as those chosen of God put on patience. And I love 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That includes, by the way, the unruly, the hardest group to be patient with. Humility is the right mindset about ourselves and others. Gentleness is treating others in the right manner. Patience is the right response when we're wronged, when someone sins against us, and people will sin against us in your home and in your church and wherever else you go. It's a constant reality, and they'll sin against you often. How do you respond? You're to respond like God responds. Show patience. Have a long nose. Give those who've sinned against you time to repent and to make it right. There's a fourth attitude that breeds unity, the end of verse 2, showing tolerance for one another in love. Patience is the right response to the sins of others. Showing tolerance is the right response to their faults and their weaknesses. The word literally means to hold back show tolerance. It means to hold yourself back. It came to mean to exercise self-restraint, to endure, to bear, to put up with something or someone. In Romans 2.4, it's used of God, and we're commanded to exercise it toward one another. One author describes it like this. It involves bearing with one another's weaknesses not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them which perhaps offend or displease us. John Stott called this attitude that mutual tolerance without which no group of human beings can, get, can live together in peace. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with, same word, tolerating one another. And notice this attitude is not to be expressed grudgingly. Verse 2 says, showing tolerance for one another in love. It's not gritting your teeth, refusing to express your irritation outwardly that's growing on the inside. It's being quick to overlook the faults and weaknesses of others from the genuine motive of love for them. This isn't overlooking a pattern of unrepentant sin. Matthew 18 tells us how to deal with that. It's a spirit that graciously puts up with the weaknesses and faults and, frankly, the things that irritate us in others that aren't sinful. Do you patiently put up with the weaknesses and faults of others? Or do you tend to magnify them, dwell on them, focus on them? It's a bad habit we all can acquire. I I remember a time in my life when I was awakened to the fact that this was a growing reality in my life. In my office, at my church office back in South Lake, there's a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscope that I bought years ago as an object lesson so that every time I see it, I remember this truth. I bought it because I found myself not showing toleration for the weaknesses and faults of the people around me. 
I was choosing instead to focus on their shortcomings. And then I realized that it was really my problem, not theirs. I bought the kaleidoscope to remind me that the key is perspective. The key is how you choose to look at others. In that kaleidoscope, if you look at one end, all you see is a bunch of rocks. You look at the other end and you see a a beautiful pattern of shapes and colors of great variety. That's what it means to show toleration. It means don't focus on the faults and weaknesses of others. Focus on their strengths. Focus on those things that you find winsome in them. Let me ask you again, just as a self-checkup, is there any relationship in your life where there is currently disunity and discord? Your marriage, your family, your church, between you and other genuine Christians in some other venue? Then ask yourself this, or, or apply it this way to yourself, I should say. If that conflict is not because of correcting false doctrine or confronting a pattern of sin, it is sinful disunity, and somebody in that relationship isn't exercising these attitudes. And if the conflict is truly over doctrine or sin, guess what? Christ still requires you to exemplify these attitudes. Christ displayed every one of them, and each of us must as well. To borrow Paul's words about Jesus' humility, let these attitudes be in you, which were also in Christ Jesus. So the first means for preserving our unity is our attitudes toward one another. Listen, the, the God who saved you demands that you are diligent to preserve the unity of believers, true believers with one another. And the way that happens is if you are willing to put on these attitudes. There's a second means here for preserving our unity, and it is to focus on the basis of our unity. Focus on the basis of our unity. This is the message of verses four through six. You see, the unity that we enjoy has an objective basis. And in verses four through six, Paul reminds us of several realities that provide the true basis of our unity. In fact, let me just say that real unity is not possible among those who aren't characterized by these things. In other words, true unity isn't possible among anyone except the true church, among true believers. Where these great realities are not present, any unity is merely a pretense. But where these are all present, there should be unity between us, whatever other differences may exist. Let's look at them quickly. First of all, the first foundation or basis for our unity is we share a common life. We share a common life. Verse 4 says, there is one body. We are all organically united to Christ as the head and to each other as the members of a body are united. We share a common life. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16. Christ we're told here in verse 16, has reconciled both Jew and Gentile into one body to God through the cross, having by that cross put to death the enmity, the, the things that caused us to be in conflict. 
In other words, Jesus Christ not only made peace between you and God, but he made peace possible between you and the people around you. We share a common life. We're one body. Romans 12, 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It's because of this organic unity that we are united. Folks, it makes as much sense for us to be united as it does for the members of your body to be united. I mean, think about it. When part of the body turns on the rest, it's a disease. It's a disorder. In autoimmune disorders, the body attacks its own cells. That is contrary to God's original design for your body, and it's contrary to his original design for his body as well. We share a common life, an inner connection that demands that we be unified. We're one body. We share a common life. There's a second basis of our unity here. We share a common source, a common source. Verse 4 goes on to say, and one spirit. Spirit can mean human spirit, or it can mean the Holy Spirit. The translators here in most of our modern translations decided that it is the Holy Spirit, and it makes sense because in verse 5, there's a reference to Christ, and in verse 6, there's a reference to the Father. So this is the Holy Spirit. How does the Spirit serve as the basis for our unity? Because it's by His work that we're all Christians, You realize what happened to you at the moment of salvation? Not only were you forgiven, not only were you justified, but you were immersed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, we were all baptized. There's no water here. This is what happened spiritually to you at the moment of salvation. We were all baptized, immersed into one body, made to drink of one spirit. You know, our testimonies, when we give them, often concentrate on the things that make our testimonies different, but the truth is the similarities are greater than the differences. Through the work of the Spirit, each of us was convicted of our sin, experienced regeneration, enabled to believe and repent, justified, and through His ongoing work, we are being sanctified. We are united because of a common source that lies behind the the change that's happened in every one of us. We're all the work of one spirit, the spirit of God. The third reality that serves as the basis for our unity is we share a common future. Verse 4, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Our calling, as you know in the New Testament, when this word is used almost without exception, It is referring to the sovereign call of God through the gospel, the effective or effectual call. It's that moment when perhaps you'd heard the gospel a hundred or a thousand times before, but in that moment, something different happened. When you heard the gospel, you were drawn powerfully, compellingly, inexorably, irresistibly to God. And if you're a Christian, It's because you were called by God through the gospel, and that call produced a hope. He called you to a hope. Now, you have to be careful in the New Testament when you come to the word hope. I remind my congregation of this often. often. The Greek word for hope is totally different from how we use the English word hope. You know, Richard and I are, I hate to say this publicly, but we are in, in Houston, but we are Cowboys fans. And, and every year, 
I hope the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl. The New Testament word for hope is not like that. The New Testament word for hope includes both a desire for something combined with the certainty that it will happen. You've got to think like that when you come to the word hope in the New Testament. You see, when God called us, he gave us both an eager desire for what's in our future, and that future is as certain as if it had already happened. That's our hope. We share chapter 1, verse 18, the hope of his calling, or here, one hope of your calling. It's the hope that God gave us when he called us to himself through the gospel. What is our hope? This is a separate message probably for me, a separate series for another time, but you trace this word hope through the New Testament and you'll discover here's what we hope for. We hope for salvation, righteousness, resurrection, redemption of the body, eternal life, Christ's return, and I love this one, Romans chapter 5, verse 2, we have the hope of seeing and sharing the glory of God. We will see him in his glory, and we will share that glory in the sense that we will perfectly reflect the moral character of Jesus Christ. That's a great hope. We share the desire for and the the certainty, the confidence of those things. We are all united in a common hope for the future. Oh, it's true. We, we may disagree. We do disagree on specific details about the future, but we're united on the most important. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus is coming again we will be perfected and receive a glorified body like his. We will live forever with our Lord in his presence on a new earth in which righteousness is at home. That's our hope. That's our common hope, and it's the basis for our unity. There's a fourth basis of our unity. In verse 5, we share a common master. Verse 5 says, one Lord this image, I promise you, was immediately clear to every believer in Ephesus who heard this letter read for the first time. We're all fellow slaves serving one kurios, one master. And Paul identifies that master back in chapter 1, verse 2. It is our kurios, Jesus the Messiah. Our unity is based on the fact that we share the same Lord Romans 10, 9, we became Christians by confessing him as Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is for us one Lord, one kurios, Jesus the Messiah, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Romans 14 says that we're ultimately accountable to our one kurios and not to each other when it comes to issues of conscience. There's no unity with those who serve a different Jesus even if they claim to be brothers. The Jesus of the Mormons is not the biblical Jesus. He's the physical offspring of a physical union between God and a woman. He's not the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. In the same way, other cults and faiths say they respect Jesus, but it's not the Jesus that we love. It's not the Jesus of the New Testament. We do not, we cannot have unity with them but with those who serve the same kurios, the biblical kurios, Jesus, the Messiah, the God-man, we are united. 
There's a fifth basis for our unity. We share a common belief. Verse 5 says, one faith. One faith. Sometimes in the New Testament, faith is used subjectively for believing, but here Paul uses it objectively. It's one faith in the sense that it's the faith. There's a body of doctrine that Christians share and are united in. 1 Timothy 4.1, some will fall away from the faith. 1 Timothy 4.6, be constantly nourished, Timothy, on the words of the faith that we have been following. Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You and I may disagree and do about substantive doctrinal issues like the nature of the millennium or infant baptism, but there are certain fundamentals all true Christians believe in order to be genuine Christians. For example, there can be no unity with those who don't affirm the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ or the gospel by faith alone in Christ alone through the grace of God alone. There's no unity with those who reject those things, but with true Christians, we share them and there can be unity. A sixth reality that serves as the basis of our unity in verse 5 is we share a common confession, one baptism. Now, some think that Paul is referring here to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but, but that's already been included back in verse 4 in the phrase one body. I, I agree with most commentators here that baptism refers to water baptism. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're immediately thinking, wait a minute, how can baptism be a source of unity between us? I mean, after all, we spend so much time being divided over issues like when and how much water and to whom. But Paul's point here is not about those things. It's about the meaning of baptism. In the early church, baptism was accompanied by this confession, Jesus is Lord. Christians were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus For example, in Ephesus, Acts 19.5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The only way to enter the Christian church was the public confession and baptism that Jesus is Lord. We are united because we have all, all true Christians have made that confession from our hearts. Finally, the seventh foundation or basis of our unity is that we share a common God and Father. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We believe in the same God, the God of the Bible, and because of the work of Jesus Christ, we've come to know that God as Father. Here, Father of all doesn't mean, obviously, all men without exception, but of all Christians. Again, look back at chapter 2, verse 18. Through Christ, we both Jew and Gentile have our access in one spirit to the Father. It's only for those who've come to acknowledge and confess Christ as Lord who can call God truly Father and who know Him as such. We're different, but we're still united because we share the same Father. I mean, isn't that true in our earthly families? I am the youngest of ten children. There are five boys and five girls in my family, and Some of my siblings and I are very much alike. Others of us, you'd hardly think we belong to the same family. What holds us together? We share the same Father. And that's how it is with us as Christians. And notice how 
Paul describes our Father. He is God over all. That describes his sovereign control over all of us. Through all, that is his sovereign providence, sustains us all. And in all, his sovereign presence is with us all. The fact that we all embrace him as God and Father, that's the basis for our unity. Now look at that list again. Those seven realities unite us to every other true Christian. And Paul lists them here intentionally to remind you, Christian, of the basis of our unity and to motivate us to preserve it. Ultimately, notice our unity grows out of the very nature of God himself. In verse 4, there's one spirit. In verse 5, one Lord. And in verse 6, one Father. The basis of our unity with each other ultimately rests in the unity that God himself enjoys. We worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, in perfect simplicity and unity. In the same way, although we obviously are not God, we are still each distinct, and we now, from this point forward, because of the work of our Lord, eternally exist in a unity that Paul compares to the unity that the persons of the Trinity enjoy. That's the basis for Christian unity, and that's what we should emphasize, brothers and sisters. We're to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We must put on the attitudes of unity. We must focus on the basis for unity. As we finish our time, I just want you to consider a couple of practical implications of this text. Again, this passage does not mean we should overlook false doctrine, false teachers, does not mean we should overlook patterns of unrepentant sin, does not mean that we should deny important doctrinal differences between us. So what does Paul's emphasis for unity here mean for us, and particularly for pastors, as well as for all believers? There are at least three crucial implications. Number one, we simply must not tolerate a spirit of disunity with other segments of the true church, with other Bible-teaching churches in our area, within the membership of our churches, or within the leadership of our churches, or between the leadership of our churches. Romans 12, 18 puts it very succinctly, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Number two, we must not reject other Christians or Christian leaders solely because of differences on issues other than the fundamental doctrines of the Christian church. We must not outright reject them unless it's over the fundamentals. You say, what are the fundamental doctrines? When does a true church become a false church? What's the difference between a weak, disobedient, doctrinally flawed true church and a false church? Well, it's a complicated question, and at the risk of oversimplifying it, let me put it this way. According to 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6, it's a false church if they have a different God, a different Jesus, a different gospel, or a different scripture. Again, at the risk of oversimplifying it, let me put it this way. A false church is wrong on either the person and work of Jesus Christ or the gospel. 
The Judaizers claimed to be an expression of genuine Christianity, but in Galatians 1, Paul absolutely disagreed. He said their denial of justification by faith alone made them enemies of the gospel. He calls them in chapter 2, false brethren. He declared them outside the Christian faith and church, and we should do the same for any Christian church denomination that preaches another Jesus or another gospel. But brothers, listen carefully. If a church embraces the true Christ and the true gospel, it's a true church. And Christ owns it. He will deal with it. He will discipline it. And we may need to speak into it as well, but it's still his church. You see that in the letters to the seven churches or the letters in the New Testament. I mean, it may be an incredibly spiritually immature church like the church in Corinth. It may have cold, dead orthodoxy and have lost its first love for Christ like the church in Ephesus. It may tolerate doctrinal error and licentious living without church discipline like the church in Pergamum. It may tolerate extra-biblical revelation like Thyatira. It may be dead, composed primarily of unbelievers like the church in Sardis. It may differ with us doctrinally in major ways. But if the true Jesus and the true gospel are taught, then it's still a true church, and it deserves different treatment than a false church. Oh, it still needs to have those things addressed that need to be addressed. We still need to speak to them, but we do it differently than if it's truly a false church. I mean, compare Christ and Paul's responses to true but weak compromising churches in the New Testament with their responses to false brethren and false churches or or to the Pharisees. Yes, confront their doctrinal error, but do not utterly reject them. This is so important as we come to settle convictions about doctrine and practice. A third practical implication of Paul's demand for unity is significant differences in doctrine and practice will dictate different levels of involvement with other Christians. Let me say that again. Significant differences in doctrine and practice will dictate different levels of involvement with other Christians. Sometimes this will be because of practical differences, like that between Paul and Barnabas. Other times, there will be significant doctrinal differences. So how do we navigate that? Well, in working it out for myself, trying to embrace the biblical concepts that are here, I've, I've called them circles of involvement. Practically, I think our connection with other Christians works out in ever-tightening concentric circles. The largest circle I will call the circle of Christian fellowship. We should be open to fellowship with anyone who believes the true gospel and the true Jesus, believes the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and who, 1 Corinthians 5, is not walking in open, unrepentant sin. We should be open to fellowship with such a one. Again, I'm painting in very broad brushstrokes, I understand that. Number two, the next circle is smaller, and it's ministry partnership. That circle gets a little smaller, a little tighter. For there to be partnership in ministry, like we're doing here in this conference, there must be essential agreement on all major issues of the Christian faith. For example, issues that often limit ministry involvement, ministry partnership, include views on the charismatic issue, Calvinism and Arminianism. Major differences even on issues of Christian liberty can do that. So, There are significant differences that may limit our ministry partnership while we can still have Christian fellowship. Thirdly, 
The third circle in is church membership. Now we get just a little tighter. To become a member of the local church, a Christian doesn't have to agree on every doctrinal issue, but must be willing to submit to the doctrines and distinctives of that church. You know, I, this, this maybe is a little oversimplistic, but the way I say it to our staff is, look, if they can get into heaven, they should probably be able to get into our church. But such a person who has differences, we ask them to agree not to try to convince others of their position on areas of disagreement to avoid division. So that circle gets a little smaller. The final circle, the tightest circle, is church leadership. To be in the leadership of a church a man must wholeheartedly agree with the doctrine and distinctives of that church. In our case, wholeheartedly agree, no reservations. Issues, depending on the church, that, that might keep a member from leadership include such issues as continuationism, a particular millennial position, integrating secular psychology and sanctification, and on and on the list goes. So be aware that the differences between us, there can still be unity, and yet there can be different levels of involvement, from Christian fellowship at the broadest circle down to the leadership of a local church. Ephesians 4 reminds us how critically important unity is to God. Can you honestly say that it's equally important to you? With true Christians, even the ignorant and misguided, whether in your church or in the larger Christian community, are you humble, gentle, patient, showing tolerance and love? Or are you proud, harsh in your manner, impatient and unforgiving when sinned against and intolerant of their weaknesses? In your Christian relationships, do you focus on the realities that all true Christians share? Or is your greatest passion doctrinal debates that are truly intramural debates? In this category, let me ask the question like this. Are you more like Martin Luther or are you more like John Calvin? Do you deal with minor doctrinal differences in a biblical way, acknowledging points of agreement, fairly representing the points of disagreement, and commit to discussing those intramural differences with attitudes that promote unity. May God grant us the wisdom to know the difference between doctrinal molehills and hills on which to die, and the commitment to care equally about doctrinal precision and personal graciousness. Let me end with 1 Timothy 1.5. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of our teaching, brothers. If the goal of our teaching and doctrine is to produce love for God and His people in others, we have personally failed if it doesn't produce the same in us. If we have a greater biblical knowledge and doctrinal clarity than a genuine love for God and His people, we have failed as Bible students, as Christ's disciples, and certainly as spiritual leaders. May we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Father, sanctify Your Word to our hearts. Lord, we confess to you that we are prone to display the opposite of all of those attitudes. We are prone to focus on the issues that 
are truly intramural debates among us and are not at the core of the Christian faith. Lord, give us the grace to treat others with these attitudes and give us the wisdom to distinguish between these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.